Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we are in verse 12 to start. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus uh, begin to confront and engage with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are these religious leaders of the Jewish people, and um, they're beginning not to just uh, say things and feel things in their hearts, but they're beginning to express it with their words, and Jesus and the Pharisees are starting to kind of have some conflict. Uh, and the point that Luke is making over the last couple weeks is that uh, Jesus can never please the religious. He can't. No matter what he does, good, bad, ugly, he can't ever please the religious. But being religious will never please Jesus. Right? These people are trying to earn it. Today we're going to see some of Jesus' radical teaching. So let's jump in and let's read it together. Starting in verse 12. It says, In these days when he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. And, and though at times it, it cuts, God, it, it, it hurts to read. God, I pray that you would give us understanding this morning. God, I pray that you would point out to us what this text means, God, and you would make it clear that only those who are humble can enter the kingdom of God. Only those who know their need for a Savior can enter the kingdom of God. It's not being religious, and it's not being a, a rich or well-achieved or, or highly nourished, God. It's none of those things. God, and I pray this morning, God, that we would see the priority in your kingdom and in your teaching that you put on humility. God, I pray that you would set our priorities straight this morning. So we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so let's, let's set the scene, right? Jesus is, is uh, on the mountain, right, is what it says. And it says that he continued all night in prayer to God. This is a common theme throughout Jesus' ministry, that he often got away to recharge, to, to fill up. And I, I've never prayed all night. Uh, John, John Ciotti and I were just joking. His eyes are struggling. And so he's like, I'm not falling asleep when you're preaching. I just got to rest my eyes. So uh, some of you also are resting your eyes, and that's okay. Um, but when I close my eyes, I'm going to fall asleep. I'm a, I'm a three-minute fall asleep at night. Maddie's a three-hour, I think. Uh, but Jesus got away often, and he was dependent on prayer. And so he spent this night in prayer, and he comes to a group of his disciples Disciples were people that were following him, trying to learn from him. And he comes to this, this large group, and he invites 12 of them into this unique, formal relationship with him. Uh, now, 12. 12. It's a very significant number. Not, I mean, if you're an Aggie, yes, that's not what I mean this morning. 12 uh, is a very significant—I <laughs> didn't even think about that, sorry— I'm all over the place in my mind. Pray for me. All right. Twelve is a very significant number to the Jews. Why? Because there's twelve tribes of Israel. And so when Jesus calls twelve of these men to be his apostles, he's signaling something way more than just, hey, that sounds like a good amount of guys, right? Twelve was a number of completion. Twelve was a number of importance. And twelve showed that, that Jesus was there for all of Israel and all all the world, right? And he, he calls these 12 to be apostles. He's calling them to be uh, not just disciples. They are disciples. And many times they're referred to as that. But an apostle is something much uh, more important, right? Disciples just means learner or follower or student. Apostle means uh, messenger or uh, like uh, ambassador or representative. And so when Jesus calls these 12, he's saying, you guys are my messengers. You are my ambassadors. You are the sanctioned ones to go and do what I am calling you to do. The word literally means sent ones. Uh, oh, we don't talk like that, so we use other words. But he is sending out these 12 as his representatives, right? As his messengers to proclaim it to the world. They're going to be the primary witnesses to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection. But more than that, they become the primary teachers of the church, right? Acts 2, we think about the verse where it says they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, right? These guys set the course and set the direction for the early church, and if you flip all the way to Revelations, it tells us that on, on the new city of Jerusalem, that on the foundation there's 12 names that the city is built upon. You know who it is? It's not my name. It's not my dad's name. It's not any of your names unless your name is Paul. I mean Peter or John. It's the 12 apostles. And what's the point? That the foundation of the church is built on these 12 men's teaching and testimony, which is based on who? Jesus, right? And so these 12 men, this day is incredibly important. Um, one, because there are no other apostles. Only Jesus gets to name apostles. 
Now, at this point, these guys have no concept. (laughs) At this point, these guys just know, man, there's something unique about this Jesus, but they don't understand all that Jesus is doing. We may read this list of names and, and, and have this sense of pride or this sense of, wow, what a, what a group of men. But if you would have read this list of names in their day, they would have gone, who's that? Zach, who is that? I'm going to quote R. Kent Hughes in his commentary. He says, when Jesus called them, they were all unknown. This was the original no-name offense. All of them except Judas Iscariot were Galileans, meaning they were from the backwoods. He calls them country boys. Four were fishermen. One was a hated tax collector. One was a radical zealot trying to overthrow Rome. None of them were famous or rich or noble or well-connected. Not one of them was a scribe, a priest, an elder, or a ruler of the people. And as they were labeled by their detractors, they were uneducated common men. Jesus calls these 12 men to lead his movement. I don't know that he saw all that would happen. I guess Jesus did. But it goes to show us that Jesus doesn't call the most noble. He doesn't call the, the, the best suited, right? Other preachers have said he doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called, right? And he looks at these 12 poor backwoods country boys and he says, Hey guys, you're my dudes and I'm sending you out to do this. And Jesus begins to teach. And Jesus begins to teach them the upside down nature of his kingdom. The reversal that he's bringing, the the backwardsness to, to what they've known their whole life. He is literally turning things upside down. He's literally reversing things, right? So he's taking the last and he's making them first. He's taking the humble that are, that are pushed down and he's exalting them. He's taking the least and making them the greatest. Why? Why is, why is Jesus' kingdom about that? Because it's about his power, not about our skill. Because it's about his glory, not ours. So that God is glorified, not us. Look at verse 17. It says, And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus, on this day, it says that he, he gathered with them on a level place. And some have called this the Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these could be the same thing. These could be two totally different times. Jesus taught all kinds of things throughout his ministry. Now, if this was a sermon, I don't know how long it would take to read Jesus' words right here. Maybe five minutes? So likely Jesus said a lot more than just these words. These are the high points, right? And he probably said these all throughout his ministry, not just on a mountain or on a plane. This is what he taught them every day. So let's don't get caught up in all the differences. But Jesus in this sermon, what does he do? He brings his disciples around. He puts the 12 closest to him because that's primarily who he's talking to. But he's also talking to the the outer ring of the disciples who are behind them, people that are trying to learn from him. And then there's a a whole other group that we typically read is called the crowd, right? 
It's people that are kind of intrigued, kind of want to know what's going on. Maybe they're there just to see the miracle. Who knows? Maybe they're there because they just walked by. But there's this, this degree of closeness, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he begins to uh, lay out what, what we call the Beatitudes, right? The blessings. The, the, this is who is blessed, and this is who is woed. I don't know what the past tense or participle of that is, right? This is who is blessed, and this is who I'm pronouncing woes upon. Those are not words that we do a lot. Anybody been pronouncing woes this week on people? That might be kind of fun. Uh, Jesus begins to describe, these are the people that are blessed. They're the ones that are going to enter into the kingdom. This is, this is the ethic. This is the, the way that the new kingdom is going to be. That's who is blessed. And those who are, that he pronounces woes upon, he says, this is, this is everyone else. Those who are not part of my kingdom that I'm bringing, right? So he's clearly separating us into two different groups of people, right? Those who are blessed and those who are full of woe. And we're going to take them in pairs this morning because he, first he pronounces all these blessings and then he pronounces the woes and they're, they're paired, okay? So we're going to go with them, the positive first and then the negative. So let's look at it, verse 20. Verse 20 and then verse 24. So he lifts up his eyes and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's who he says is blessed, the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now before we even begin to talk about what this means, this is very uh, piercing. I don't know the right word, right? It's hard to read this, right? Because you go, oh, well, do I have too much money? Am I, am I poor or am I rich? I, I kind of think of myself as poor. And we go, we go down all these rabbit holes, rabbit trails. But before we do that, Jesus is not teaching just about the physical world, okay? He's using physical things that we understand to teach us about the spiritual reality. This is what Jesus does, right? The Sabbath is about this practice of resting, and that teaches us about uh, something spiritual, that we need rest. Uh, the Lord's Supper, all these things. There's a physical element, and there's importance to that, but he's really talking about the spiritual, okay? So there is importance today to poverty and riches, but primarily, what is Jesus trying to address? Our hearts. The spiritual side of this, okay? So he says first, blessed are you who are poor. Poor does not mean that you just don't have money. This is not just an economic term. We know this because in Matthew's gospel, what does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So we know Jesus is talking about more than just blessed are those who have a low bank account, right? That's not what he's saying, okay? He says, blessed are you who are poor. It's humble, contrite, broken. It's not about our, our, our bank account. It's about our spiritual state. And so what he's saying is the poor, spiritually, they know their need, they know they have a need. They know that they don't bring anything to the table. They know that they don't have, they can do this on their own. He says, blessed are those people, right? It is a blessing to know our need for God. 
And so what, what he is saying, that the blessing that we receive because of this is that we get to be a part of the kingdom. The only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to be spiritually poor, is to be humble, is to know that we can't do it on our own. No good works, no effort of our own, no giving money to the church, no anything will solve our main problem, which is our spiritual poverty. He says, blessed are those who are poor. He's saying, blessed are those who know they need grace. Now, he, then he says, woe to those who are rich. Right, We've got to think about the opposite side, too. Woe to those who are rich. Again, don't, don't just think material wealth, right? Because wealth is talked about all throughout Scripture as a blessing from God. Wealth is talked about as a, as a thing we can use for God's glory, right? It's a sign of God's blessing on our life is what the Scripture talks about. So he's not just saying, woe to those who have a large bank account. What's he saying? It's more about those who are proud, those who are arrogant, those who are self-righteous, those who think that their resources, their spiritual resources can get them into the kingdom of God. He says, woe to you who think that you can earn your way to me. He, said, he says uh, in, that they have already received their consolation. It's a word that means comfort. They've, they've already received their consolation. And so what Jesus is saying, these people who think that they can do it on their own are not part of the kingdom. The only way to get into the kingdom is to be humble. And that's the truth Jesus is teaching. It takes humility to be included in the kingdom of God. Church, if we live for this present moment only, we've missed it. Now, we have been put here in this present moment for a purpose. But if everything that we do as people and as a church is wrapped up in this moment right here, and we have no view of eternity, of the kingdom of God, then we have missed it, right? Let's keep going. Look at verse 21. He says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then verse 25. He says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Again, Jesus is using a physical experience that we all have had. Anybody get hangry in here? Anybody hangry right now? Okay. All right. We'll be done shortly. He's using a physical experience that we all understand to teach us a spiritual truth. Now, in Matthew's account, he gives us a little more detail of what Jesus said. And he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness, right? So this is not just about blessed are those who are hungry right now, right? That's not what he's talking about. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who long for something that they, cannot, they do not have, right? And so he's saying to us that if we are going to be a part of the kingdom, we have to have this hunger for righteousness. We have to desire a righteousness. Now, do these people who have, have it all together, do they hunger for righteousness? No, because they view themselves as righteous, they view themselves as perfect, right? But these people who are poor and who are hungry know I have no righteousness to bring to the table. 
So he's saying the only people who are a part of the kingdom of God are those who long for something they don't have. They long for the righteousness that only God can give us. And what does he say in this? What is the blessing of those who hunger now? You shall be satisfied. Those who want it will receive it. Those who cry out for it will get it. This is salvation, right? The, we, we cannot earn our way to God. We are not right with God. But when we cry out to Jesus and we confess our sin, what happens? Our past is forgiven, but we're given Christ's righteousness on us. Unless you do that, you will never be right with God. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be one day satisfied. And we will sit at a banquet in heaven and we will feast on all that we can, right? It's a beautiful picture of that, that we hunger now so that we can feast later. But he says, woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who are full now because you shall be hungry. Being full is this picture of, of being really engorged is more the, the, the idea of the word, right? Of being so stuffed that you just, it's the, it's the after Thanksgiving feeling of like, I shouldn't have had the second piece of pie, right? Woe to you who are full now. And again, he's teaching us about something spiritual, right? He says, woe to you who think that you have done enough to please God in your religion, in your own righteousness. He says, woe to you. Now, this, this is played out in Deuteronomy, and I want to read it. I don't have time. Um, we read it last week in our life group. Um, whatever, I'm reading it. Here we go. Uh, Deuteronomy 8. I don't have it on the screen, so just listen. Starting in verse 11, he says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command to you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord you God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. God's making a point to them. He says, beware when you get full, when everything in your life is, is put together and you have enough that you think that you're the one who did this. Right? He says, beware of that. Don't get there spiritually either. That's Jesus' point. Don't get to the point where you're like, I've done all this, and I've taught this, and I go here, and I serve there, and I give this, and think that that's what gets you a place in the kingdom of God. He says, beware. 
Woe to you who are full now. But blessed are you who hunger now. The only satisfaction we will ever have, those who hunger, is Christ. Nothing in this world, nothing in this present moment will ever satisfy us. Let's keep going. Verse 21, the second half, he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then the opposite at the end of 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. I'm going to be honest, this one's a little harder for me to understand. So if you've got some insight, I would love to hear it at the end of the service. He says, blessed are those who weep now, for you shall be, or for you shall laugh. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So I, I think it means one of two things. Where those who weep now are weeping because of the difficulty, the persecution that he's going to talk about next. But I think if it's, if it's a spiritual interpretation, then he's saying, blessed are you who weep now because you're weeping over your sin, right? Because you're weeping over uh, the lack of righteousness and the brokenness in your life and the brokenness in this world. I think that's probably what Jesus means. I'm just giving you my educated guess this morning. This is what he's saying, right? That, that the ones who weep now are those who are broken over their sin, broken over their need for a Savior, broken over the ways that we've turned from God, right? And he's saying one day your mourning will turn to rejoicing, to laughter, right? But it's better to weep now over sin and to laugh later than to laugh now over our sin and make it not a big deal and weep later. I think that's what Jesus is saying. It's better to weep now over our sin and rejoice later than to laugh now at our sin and weep later, right? We are meant to weep over our sin. We should be heartbroken every time we turn from God and we go our own way. And one day God will turn that into laughter. One day he will turn that into joy unimaginable. But he says, woe to those who laugh now. We are not meant to diminish or laugh at sin in any way. And we live in a culture where we just, we just blow it off. No big deal. Right? You lied on your taxes. Dude, everybody's doing it. Right? Cheating on your wife. It's all over the place. No big deal. We live in this culture that laughs now. Laughing at rejecting the God of the universe. And he's saying, woe to you. It's better to weep now over your sin and rejoice later than to laugh now at what God deems weep-worthy. <laughs> and, yeah, I lost my words. Jesus is not saying that we should be a bunch of sad people, by the way. He's not saying that we should be a, a, a gloomy group this morning or that we should never laugh or that we should, we should think everything is so serious. But he is saying that our priorities, the way this new kingdom is set up is that our hearts are broken over sin every time, whether it's in our life or those around us. Right? That is the new priority. That is the new ethic in the kingdom. Let's keep going. Verse 22, 
He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And the opposite, he says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And just think about how radical this is. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're hated. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody rejoices that they're getting publicly scorned. Nobody's, nobody's pumping their fist in the air, cheering, yelling, telling their wife about it because people are bad-mouthing them, right? This is totally upside down. Now, Jesus is not saying just blessed are you when people are mean to you. What is he saying? He says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for what? For my name's sake, for Christ's name's sake. Sometimes we're persecuted because we're jerks, because we're sinners, because people are mean for no reason at all. Don't put everything on that this is why I'm persecuted because I'm a Christian and da 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 No, maybe you're just a jerk, right? Um, what he's saying is blessed are you when you identify with Christ and you stand with Christ and you stand on his word and people malign you. He says, that's when you're blessed. That's when you're, that's when you're a part of the kingdom. That's when you know what it's like to be like Christ because Jesus knows what he's about to go through, Right? Jesus promised us that all of us who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. That, that, that is true. Now, don't feel guilty because we live in America and we have freedom of religion and we really don't experience this all the time, right? It's okay. It doesn't mean that we're not godly. It doesn't mean that it, they will always face persecution. But Christian, don't doubt that it will come. Don't doubt that one day we will be persecuted for standing on biblical convictions, for standing on the name of Christ. It will not always be popular or good for business to be a Christian, as it has been in our country for a very long time. He says, blessed are you because your reward is great in heaven. What, what, what is ahead is, is worth so much more than any difficulty you're going to face because of persecution. Then he says, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, right? When everybody thinks uh, that things are going well in your life. He says, woe to you because this is how they treat the false prophets. We all love a false prophet, right? Because they just come in and say, everything's good. God's got something for you right around the corner. You know, God's going to do all this stuff. They only proclaim good things, of course, they're beloved. And the, and the real prophets, the ones who speak the word of God, are the ones who are maligned and are hated. And he says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Now, this is not an excuse to ruin your reputation, right? He's not saying just go create a bad reputation. We know this because he, he says that one of the qualifications for being an, an elder is to be what? Well thought of by outsiders. Jesus has not given us this liberty to just go live however we want. I don't care what you think about me. No, we should. We should care what the world thinks about us. But we still have to stand on truth. 
Jesus is saying, if everything we say and do lines up perfectly with the culture, if everybody loves us because, because of what we believe, those outside the church, those that don't believe in Christ, I think he's saying, you might want to check it, right? You might want to make sure that you're not just believing what the culture believes, what, what society believes. This is going to rub against culture. I don't like that. <laughs> I wish it were not so. It would be so much easier if, if, if we just kind of all fit in and it was just lovey-dovey and everything we believed just like meshed and we just had this kumbaya kind of relationship with the world. But the reality is there are truth claims in here that go directly against what the culture says is true. And we as Christians cannot shy from that. And we should be aware that we may, will be persecuted for those beliefs. He says, woe to you when all speak well of you, because this is how they treated the false prophets. But blessed are you when you are hated because of my namesake. Jesus is drawing a line, and he's separating us into two things. Those who are blessed, those who are woeful. Those who are a part of the kingdom, those who are not. Those who are part of the kingdom are spiritually poor. They're spiritually hunger, hungry for righteousness. They don't view themselves as having it all together, as being perfect. They know their need for Christ. This is a hard truth today, right? And I think for us, what this means for us, I, I, the way I read this, I think it's about our priorities. I really do, right? We can be so caught up with, with having the now, having, being satisfied now, being, being happy now, being uh, liked now. We, we want what's right in front of us, and we miss what's, what's so glorious about the future, that there is a reward that is so much greater than any difficulty we face now. We get our priorities wrong. We put some things ahead of others. And Jesus comes to remind us of what the kingdom is about. Right? What is your priority? What is it? What drives you? What's the most important question you ask when faced with a decision? What are you thinking about when you think about the person you don't like? When, you, when you're doing that business deal, when you're, when you're talking to those people at school, what is your priority? Is it to honor Christ or is it to satisfy yourself now? Jesus says, blessed are you when you honor me. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. And though at times it is hard, at times it, it draws a line and it separates us, God. I, God, we confess this morning that we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that you proclaim to us the truth of God. And truth in its essence divides us. God, I pray this morning that, that you would set our priorities straight, God. Not to be about the present, not to be about the now, not to be about the immediate, being well-liked, being full, being rich, God, but that we would be poor and humble. God, you would show us our need for you.
God, that you would give us a hunger for righteousness. God, that we would weep over where we fall short, but we would look forward to the day, to the day when we stand with you in eternity, having realized that it really was true. God, I pray for those in this room today that are questioning that, trying to figure out where they fall on what side of the line. God, whether they're part of the kingdom or they're not, whether they believe or they don't, whether they have faith or they don't, God, I pray this morning that you would make it clear, God. And I pray that you would, those that are not in the kingdom, those who do not know you as Savior, who are trying to earn their way to you or trying to be good or whatever it is, God, I pray that you would convict them of their sin today. God, and they would call out to you in repentance, in faith. They would turn to you and say, God, I'm desperate and I need you. God, thank you for your word this morning. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.